I'll invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, if you're looking in the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1198. We're going to set 2 Samuel aside for uh, a few weeks as we get closer to Easter. I got an email this week from an airline with whom I have a, a credit card to earn miles and that kind of thing, you know. And they were updating me on the, uh, the cardholder benefits. You've probably gotten one of these emails or maybe something in the mail, something like that before. And I just happened to get this email that was updating me on cardholder benefits at the same time that I was working on something um, on my computer called a thank list. It's something I have on my computer and my phone where I'm writing a list of things for which I'm thankful. And I'm, so I'm trying to get a big list of reasons to give thanks to God. And I'm trying to look at that every day just to remind myself of all the reasons I have to, to thank Him. And so I'm, I'm seeing the little notification pop up, you know, update to cardholder benefits while I'm looking at this document that I'm, I'm, you know, thanking God for all these things. And it struck me that I was working on my own list of, you know, cardholder benefits, as it were. We see this practice modeled in Scripture in Psalm 103. David says to himself, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. So David calls on himself to think on all the benefits of the Lord. And so I thought we might do that together this morning before we read. I want us to be very specific. The question I want us to ask ourselves is, what benefits do those who trust in Jesus receive from His death and resurrection? So what benefits do those who trust in Jesus receive from His death and resurrection? I want you to think of what those benefits might be. Here are some answers that might have popped in your head. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have our sins forgiven. Anybody think of that one? We are counted righteous in the sight of God. We have eternal life. We have peace, satisfaction, and joy in the midst of trials. We have fellowship with other believers. We have hope for the future. Confidence in the face of death. We have a place prepared for us. That list could go on and on and on. All of those things are 100% true, but here's what I want you to hear. All of those things that I just said, as great as they are, they are fringe benefits. They're fringe benefits. They are benefits that we receive only if we have received the capital G gift, which is Jesus Jesus is not only the giver of gifts like forgiveness and joy and peace and satisfaction and hope in heaven. He is the greatest gift. And we're going to hear the Apostle Paul speaking by the Holy Spirit point us to that truth together this morning. And so let's read together in Romans 5. We're going to begin in verse 6. Romans 5 verse 6. For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would be pleased to speak through your word. Um, God, we know that the power is in your words and what you have said, not in me or my ability to communicate it. But I pray that you would just help me to be faithful. Uh, God, more than cleverness, give me clarity. Um, God, help me just to say and to explain and to illustrate and to apply what you have said in your word. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak alongside this word, impress it upon our hearts, help us to behold all that you have done for us, Lord, and all that you are for us, and that we would be amazed by it and that we would be thankful for it and that we would indeed rejoice as we're commanded to do. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now here's the big idea for our text this morning. The big idea is that Christ died and rose again to reconcile us to God. So over the weeks leading up to Easter, we're trying to answer that question, why did Christ die and rise again? And the answer for us today is He died and He rose again to reconcile us to God. The highest goal of the death and resurrection of Jesus was that we might be restored to a right relationship with the God who made us in His image. So I want to I point our attention this morning to five truths about this reconciliation. What does that mean? That Christ died and rose again to reconcile us to God. The first thing we need to see together is the necessity of this reconciliation. We need to see that this reconciliation was absolutely necessary. And apart from it, you and I and everyone else in the world would be absolutely hopeless. Now, this point is somewhat self-evident because if someone has to be reconciled, the relationship must have been strained or broken in some way. There would be no need for reconciliation if things were perfectly fine to start with. So the necessity of reconciliation is self-evident. But Paul goes a step further and he wants to make it clear why we needed to be reconciled to God. So he uses several phrases here in these verses to describe our state before being reconciled to God. I want you to notice this with me. He says in verse 6, while we were still weak. That's what we were before being reconciled to God. And if you haven't been reconciled to God, that's what you are, present tense. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So there's another descriptor of what a person apart from Christ before being reconciled to God through Christ, what they are. They are weak. They are ungodly. Verse 8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So weak, ungodly sinners. And then verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. Those are all Paul's ways of explaining to us why we needed to be reconciled to God. And there are, I want us to put all those words into 
two buckets, okay? There are two ways we could summarize what we were before being reconciled to God or what someone is if they haven't yet been reconciled to God. We were hostile to God. That's one bucket. That's one truth. And the other one is we were unable to change that hostility. So the, the two big categories here is we were enemies and we were weak. Those are the phrases Paul uses, and I'm going to show you this in other places in Scripture. So we were hostile to God, unable to change that hostility. Or if someone has not yet been reconciled to God, they are currently right now hostile to Him and unable to change that. Now part of the problem in the so-called Bible Belt in which we live is, as, as we sometimes say, you have to get people lost before you can get them saved because nobody thinks of themselves this way. And no one thinks of their neighbor or their family member or their co-worker this way. But the, the, the Bible could not be any more clear that this is the case. This is the clear testimony of Scripture. Colossians 1.21, Paul describes unbelievers as being alienated from God and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So if you say, Matt, that word hostile sounds a little bit too strong. Well, the Holy Spirit didn't think it was too strong. Hostile, not, not just alienated, not just separated from God by our sin, but opposed to God by our sin. And then Romans 8, 7, Paul puts these two ideas together when he says, "...the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law." Then he adds, "...indeed it cannot." So the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, meaning it does not submit to God's law. It is unwilling to submit to God's law. And then he adds, indeed, it cannot. So there is an unwillingness and there is an inability. An unbeliever is unwilling to submit to God and unable to submit to God, to trust in Him, to surrender to Him as Lord. That's why Paul says here in these verses, while we were weak, that means not just, you know, kind of hampered, not just that we had a limp, but that as Paul says in Ephesians 2, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So we were weak and we were God's enemies. To be a, to be a sinner apart from being reconciled to God is to have at the same time a weakness that makes you unable to submit to God and a hostility that makes you unwilling to submit to God. And that is why reconciliation was necessary because of our sinful hostility toward God and because of our inability to turn ourselves around on our own. And the second truth flows naturally out of the first. The first truth was the necessity of reconciliation, which had to do with our sinful state. And the second truth we need to see is the initiative of reconciliation, which is God's unearned love toward us. The initiative of reconciliation is all with God. And that flows out of the fact that apart from Him, apart from His work, we were weak and hostile to Him. So because we were weak and because we were His enemies and hostile to Him, He's the one who had to take the initiative in reconciling us to Himself. And so Paul draws a contrast here between human love and divine love. Notice what he says in verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. That, that verse can be really confusing. That verse confused me for a long time because I'm reading that and I'm saying, what's the difference between a righteous person and a good person? Those sound like the same thing. 
But in the Bible, goodness is not just the way someone is, it's what they do. So righteousness could be a way of describing someone's character, but goodness is a way of describing someone's activity. It's what they do. So uh, a righteous person here is describing someone who, who we might say is a good person, meaning they're righteous, they, they have a good character, but then Paul distinguishes that from someone who is good, meaning someone who has done good to us. So think of these two people, righteous person and good person. They're both good, but one of them is, is a good person who you don't know. It, it may be, you know, Billy Graham, right? Great guy, but I've never met him. So he's, a, he's in this category a righteous person. A good person is someone who is righteous and they have personally done some good to me. Maybe when I had some kind of sickness, they brought me a meal. Or maybe when I was sick, they called me and checked on me. Or maybe when I was down out of my luck, they gave me a job or something along those lines. So Paul is wanting us to think about the difference between a righteous stranger and a person who has done good to us. And what he's saying to us is, don't we have an easier time loving people who are good, especially people who have been good to us? We have an easier time loving someone who is good, especially if they've done some good to us that we can see and for which we're thankful. And what Paul does is he says, that's what human love is like. Human love latches on to things and to people that are lovely and lovable, especially if we can see it up close. But God's love, on the other hand, extends even to His enemies. Verse 8, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not, not when we were righteous, not when we were good, not because we had done anything good for Him, but while we were, his, while we were sinners, and as He's going to go on to say, while we were His enemies... Christ died for us. So the initiative of our reconciliation to God lies with God Himself in His unearned love toward us. The next thing we see is the instrument of reconciliation, which is Christ's death for us. The instrument, so the initiative is in God. He's the one who initiated this reconciliation. And the way He accomplished it, the instrument of it, was Christ's death. We see this in verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 make parallel points. Paul states a truth in verse 9, and then he circles back and says it a different way in verse 10. In verse 9 he says, "...since therefore we have now been justified by His blood." And we'll pause there. We'll come back to the second half of verse 9 in a second. So notice the phrase, "...we have now been justified by His blood." And then verse 10, "...for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son." So in verse 9 he says something that God did. In verse 10 he says something that God did. Both of them came by, in one case, His blood, by the death of His Son, which are two ways of describing the same thing. And in one case he says we've now been justified. And in verse 10 he says we're reconciled. Those are two sides of the same coin. 
So to be justified is to be counted right in the eyes of God. To be reconciled is to be restored to right relationship with God. And the point is you cannot be reconciled to God without being justified by God. He first has to remove the offense that is between you. In, in order for you to be reconciled to Him, He has to do something about the offense, the thing that stands in between you, which is your sin. And so He does that by justifying people by the blood of His Son. And then once He justifies someone, then they're reconciled to Him. And in both cases, the sacrificial death of Jesus is the instrument of that. It's the means by which God has justified us and reconciled us to Himself by the death of His Son. The fourth truth is the assurance of reconciliation, which is Christ's life for us. The assurance of reconciliation, which is Christ's life for us. I want you to look again at verse 9 and notice how Paul says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That's why I say that Paul's pointing our attention to things that are better. Being justified by the blood of Jesus is an amazing gift. And we would be blessed if that's all that God ever did for us. But He does more than that. Notice that the reconciliation we have is something we enjoy now. Paul says in verse 9, we have now been justified by His blood. Verse 10, now that we're reconciled. Verse 11, we have now received reconciliation. So we don't have to wonder about it. We don't have to wait for it. It's something we can enjoy now. And this present reconciliation with God assures us of what He's going to do for us in the future. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be, future tense, saved by Him from the wrath of God. Now, if you think critically about that, you say, well, if I've, if I've been justified by His blood, why would I need to be saved by Him from His wrath in the future, right? If I've already, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so why do I need to be saved by His life in the future? Well, let's keep reading in verse 10. This is where Paul states the same truth in a different way. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So again, if we've already been reconciled to God by the death of His Son, why do we need to be saved by the life of His Son? Paul is reminding us that not only did Jesus die for us in the past, but that He rose again and He now lives to intercede for us. So our assurance before God is not only grounded on what Christ did for us at the cross, but also on what Christ is doing and will do for us as our living mediator who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. So what we have in Jesus is not just a Savior who gave His life for us. Again, as if that were a small thing. But we have a Savior who is risen from the dead and who is alive and is seated at God's right hand, interceding for us, Paul says in Romans 8. and Hebrews 7, He ever lives to intercede for those who put their trust in Him. So 
Because Jesus is alive, that's our assurance before God. It's not just that Jesus did something for us, but that right now He is doing something for us, and He promises to do something for us in the future, which is to keep us, to hold us. And that's why Paul can say that we have now been justified by His blood, but even more than that, we will be saved by Him from the wrath of God. We are now reconciled to God, but even more than that, we're going to be saved by His life because He's alive. We'll be kept by Him from any condemnation, from any wrath. And then the fifth truth about this reconciliation is the joy of reconciliation the joy of reconciliation. So Paul has said some amazing things in these verses, but I want you to notice how verse 11 begins. More than that. And the question when you read those three words is, more than what? What has Paul already said? More than... Christ dying for us while we were still weak, ungodly sinners? More than God reconciling us to Himself while we were His enemies? More than God's assurance to us that He will spare us from His wrath through the life and intercession of His Son? Paul still has something more to say. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So Christ died for us in the past to justify us and to purchase our reconciliation. And He's promised in the future that He's always going to live. He's always going to intercede for us. And Paul says that because all of that's true, and even more than that, right now, we who have now received reconciliation, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The highest gift we receive in the gospel is God. That is what it means to be reconciled to Him. It means that our sins have been paid for, yes. It means that our eternity has been secured. But more than that, it means that we get God today, tomorrow, and forever. And Paul says, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just sometimes puzzle over that word rejoice. The word Paul uses for rejoice, he uses it several times here in Romans 5. And it could be translated rejoice as it is in the ESV, or it could be translated boast. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, this kind of boasting is not bragging. It simply means that this joy is not something we keep to themselves. And that, to me, is why it might be helpful to be reminded of why this word rejoice could mean boast. Because boasting is something you do with your mouth. It's not just something you feel. It's something you do with your mouth. And I can tell you from experience as someone who when I was in high school, liked to talk trash on the basketball court, you don't always have to actually feel confident to say it. Sometimes you can talk trash because you're trying to do mind games on your opponent, not because you actually feel like you're Michael Jordan. And there's a lesson for us in that. 
That's what Paul means when he says we rejoice in God. Not that we always feel joyful, but that we discipline ourselves to boast in Him, to talk trash on His behalf. So what I want you to see is we boast in God on, on two, two levels. First, we boast in God to one another. We boast in God to one another. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. So when we gather together as the redeemed, reconciled people of God, we're gathering to rejoice in God, to boast in God to one another. When we sing songs of praise, we are boasting in God to one another. So yes, we're singing to Him, we're singing praises to Him, but we're singing to Him in earshot of other people so that we're you know, effectively saying to one another, come on, let's sing together about the blood of Jesus that never lose, loses its power. Let's sing together that yes, there is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. So we're, we're doing that, we're letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. We're rejoicing in God together. So we, we boast in God to one another, but then we also boast in God to others who have not yet been reconciled to Him. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Through Christ God reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we could ask this question, if you have been reconciled to God by faith in Jesus, what are the instruments that God used to do that? The first and the most important is the instrument of His Son's death and resurrection. That is how your reconciliation with Him was accomplished and purchased. But the secondary instrument that God used to reconcile you to Himself, if you have been reconciled to Him, is He used someone in your life to tell you that news and to call on you to be reconciled with God. That's what Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 5. God reconciled us to Himself and He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So everybody who's been reconciled to God is called to be an agent of reconciling other people to God. That's why Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So if you have been reconciled to God, this is the reason why. Not just so that you could have your sins forgiven. Not just so that you could go to heaven. But so that you could use whatever time God gives you on this earth to be an ambassador for Christ, a minister of reconciliation, using your actions and attitudes and words to bring as many people to Jesus as possible, to call on as many people as possible, be reconciled to God. We're going to have this serious joy impressed on, on us this morning by taking the Lord's Supper this is one way, taking the Lord's Supper is one way that we rejoice in God together. In the Lord's Supper we proclaim the death and resurrection of Christ. We are proclaiming the instrument by which we've been reconciled to God. We sometimes call this communion because it portrays 
that reconciliation, that fellowship with God and with one another. And our communion with God and with one another came at the expense of the body and blood of Jesus. He is the price and prize of our reconciliation. And so because the Lord's Supper is a way of professing faith in Jesus, only those who have trusted in Him should partake of it. For all of us, this is a good time to pause and to do what Paul urged the Corinthians to do, which is to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. The way to know whether you're in the faith is to know uh, whether you're responding right now in this moment to God's Word in trust and in repentance, or are you hardening your heart? Paul goes on to say, after he says that about we implore you, be reconciled to God, he says at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 6, working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And then Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pause together and pray and ask the Lord to impress that on our hearts together.